Welcome to Don't You Want Me, a podcast series taking a light-hearted look at the most relatable, intriguing and dysfunctional relationships in film. I'm Rich. I'm Kat. You're not going to let me in there, are you? You've got your armour back on. That's that. I have no armour left. You stripped it from me. Whatever is left of me. Whatever is left of me. Whatever I am. I'm yours. In this episode, we're talking about Martin Campbell's Casino Royale from the year 2006. It was screenplay by Neil Purvis, Robert Wade and Paul Haggis. This marked Daniel Craig's debut as the nation's favourite MI6 agent. Tonight we're raising our vodka martinis to James, played by Daniel Craig, and Vesper, played by Eva Green. Now, did this love leave Bond shaken or stirred? And do we look like we give a damn? So I think it's important to point out from the get-go that you know everything about Bondrich, and I know very little. I think this is the only Bond film I've seen more than once, in fact, though I am quite obsessed with the Bond theme songs. Um, in terms of Bond's big loves, is Vesper regarded among fans as one of his most significant, would you say? I, I think as a significant, yes. I mean, the, the only real comparison to her previously would be uh, Tracy from On Her Majesty's Secret Service, was Diana Rigg. Um, he met her. It was a very, the plot that her father paid Bond to basically <laughs> keep her on the straight and narrow, and he eventually fell in love with her and they got married. And uh, spoiler alert, she, di- she died at the end. In terms of this, I mean, this was very much back in 2006. This film was a reboot to the series and we're going back to the very start of Bond when he earned his 00 status. So I suppose in, if we're talking continuity, that never happened. And we're, we're in a world, you know, this the, the complicated thing is we've had M, Judy Dench, who was in previous Bond films, and yet we've got a new Bond, we've gone back to the beginning. But when this relationship is played out, I mean, we, we don't meet Vesper until nearly halfway through the film. And she's a, a treasury agent for Her Majesty's government. They're helping Bond play a high-stakes poker game. And it's strange when they have this meeting at the beginning on a train going to Montenegro, which Bond films have this classic thing about train journeys and stuff. And you kind of think it's an interesting twist. I mean, where if you're watching it for the first time, I mean, having seen this more than once, of course, you, you're kind of you know where it heads but you know seeing them meet on a train and that did you feel from the film that there was a real connection between them from the off I really did I that meeting that they have on the train reminded me a lot of the Hitchcock film North by Northwest where Cary Grant and even Marie Saint uh, they meet on a train for the first time and their exchange is quite similar and it has that kind of crackle to it. There's a real frisson between them, I think, right from the beginning and a kind of quiet, quiet friction while at the same time as there being flirtation. And I think that you feel right from their first meeting that Bond has met someone that's going to challenge him and who isn't there to, as she puts it, to be disposable she says that um, you think of women as disposable pleasures rather than meaningful pursuits and there's something about her that does feel meaningful 
were you struck as someone that has seen other so many other Bond films were you struck by their first meeting in that respect did it feel different to other ones that had come before yeah I think bear in mind that the era it was and in 2006 when you compare it to a lot of the previous relationships with films I mean obviously Bond has this reputation as being a philanderer and sleeping with numerous women of you know and treating them sometimes quite poorly that this she was very much an equal in in a lot of ways that yes some previous relationships were also you know whether they were a peer they were also a secret agent or whether they had some sort of power or standing that he was equal to but in this Vespa in the role that she was you know she literally was holding the purse strings and I know we've talked about other episodes about um, who has the power who holds the cards in the relationship and she holds power in a in the financial way you know she's the one who really has the say on his involvement in the poker game but also in this train scene there is that kind of and I've written here spiky side to the dialogue where they are pointing poking each other they I wouldn't say making fun but they're very much jibes about being orphans and things like that which you don't really expect from a disposable relationship because yeah it was quite a an interesting thing and I guess there was this whole emphasis when they were rebooting the franchise that there was around more equality and treating women with a bit more respect and that Bond isn't this go around sleeping with people willy-nilly I mean I I don't know there's probably a statistic on which film he sleeps with the most people I don't know but back in 2006 they were trying to make things a little bit more modern but I mean would, would that be something that you maybe not notice having not seen many of the other films but coming into it with a more modern era do you think this is a bit more something that you could recognize oh completely well I was I my teenage years were um did involve going to see the Pierce Brosnan Bond films I mean you know they, they were the films that would come to the to the local cinema so so they were the ones that would have been around when I was young and I can remember going to see this one when it came out, think, knowing that there was a new Bond, but kind of thinking it was going to be similar sort of tone to those Pierce Brosnan films. And, it, you know, I always enjoyed going to see those films, but I don't think I remember seeing one where I felt as if my, my soul had been kind of touched. And I can remember coming out of this one feeling feeling quite quite differently thinking that it carried with it while at the same time as having humor to it as a film that it had a lot of sadness in a really good way that it had that in Eva Green's character you felt someone who had their own narrative and their own push and pull in the same way that James Bond does and how that when you're watching it as a woman is really nice to see she she feels like a fully fleshed out character and she's she matches him for charisma i think she's very mysterious she's very chic which i love i mean that's the thing as a film and them as a couple it's all very classy and there's something very satisfying about it and also i was thinking this time after you and i have talked about some romantic comedies recently and the relationships in romantic comedies 
I was thinking about how if you do write the relationship well, a Bond film is a really good way of showcasing a relationship uh, that's sort of right from the start where you get that kind of crackle of tension between people because in Bond films you get that feeling of danger all the time whereas in romantic comedies sometimes they can be a bit too cosy and actually when you're falling for someone it does feel a bit dangerous I think it does feel like you're putting yourself on the line so there's something about the atmosphere of a Bond film that's actually really great to, to showcase a romantic relationship I think I don't think I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, it's something that they've kind of flitted on and off over the series. But uh, I think by the time they've got to this one and they've gone back to a source novel that was, I think it was released in 1953. So the story was over 50 years old. Yeah. And obviously, while not being a straight lift, you know, they did keep huge amounts and, and obviously the main plot around Vesper. Again, you know, if you haven't seen the film or read the book, you know, probably, probably a good time to, you know, what we're talking about. But the fact that she is betraying Bond, that everything that she does when you watch it for the first time, it's interesting. It's hard to take yourself back to that first time without what, without knowing what comes at the end. But you see her as she's a, a kind of colleague of his. She's on this mission with him, and it turns out, after all, you know, and this is one of the things that was quite interesting about the relationship is that while everyone assumes it's James Bond, he is the, the charismatic he's the alpha he everything about it and yet she is the one who through coercion is keeping this relationship going for the means of others financially mainly but that she conceals it for that long there's parts that we learn later in the film you know where Le Chief learns that they know his tell in the poker game and uh, about the the bug that they place in his asthma inhaler you know, it's even like you know a double double blind sort of thing where they assume that Mathis, the the other agent, is actually the the bent one. And of course, we found that it's Vesper all along because her boyfriend had been kidnapped and she'd been blackmailed into doing this this work. And when you come to it now, and and obviously it's easy if you've seen the film before, you can always look. You're trying to fill those gaps with your brain, but the way that she falls in love with Bond despite everything that's going on. And Bond, you know, still quite raw. He's still new to the the double O game. He falls for her too. And I think this is almost where he learns this valuable lesson about and it hardens him for the future around loving and trusting and and all these things. It's I think the more modern films, there's less of that. You know, there's there's heartbacks to Vesper in the future films and that the relationship he forms with um with Madeline is kind of reminiscent of that as well. But I think in this, you know, when you suddenly realise that she had that influence all along, it really makes you think differently about the about where it goes and when you come to see it again. And, and I wonder if we've talked about other films, you know, is it easy to kind of divorce yourself from that? And when you look and, and come back to it, I mean, is that something you reckon you've seen that in other films? I mean, was that this was this that much of a twist? Uh, well, I can remember fi finding it a, t a twist, certainly, and I think that there's, as as well as the twist, you also have these other incidences that the two of them have shared running up to that in the um, she assists Bond when he's killing someone and she watch watches, watches that happen, and then they're bonded by that experience that they go through, and then you have that incredible scene of them in the shower together, fully clothed with uh, James sucking her fingers and 
her looking terribly shaken up by it all. And then you also have her saving his life after he can't find the uh, wire to go into the defibrillator. So though you have this twist in terms of her betrayal, there are also other things that have, have, have built up to that moment where you can really see how they have become in an authentic way bonded to one another. And once you hear through M's account at the end what position Vesper was in, you can understand um, much more maybe some of her reactions to things as as the story goes along, although it's never completely clear what's what her real feelings are and which things uh, might have been more for show. I mean, do you do you have a moment in the narrative where you think she is is genuinely falling for James? Do you can you pinpoint when that is? Do you think? I mean, it seems as though the scene in the hospital afterwards, where I mean, she's all goes to see him and he's he's recuperating after his torture, and when. It, it transpires that the password for the bank account was her name all along, and there's something in her face, the way that she reacts to that, that kind of go, "Oh my god, you know, he's serious." And the the dialogue between them, and the, the kiss, and that. But there's, I mean, there are bits throughout, but she seems, especially during the poker game, where she's almost like a boss. She's overseeing yeah. how he's spending, and and she wants for most of that scene losing the the government's money that she's in charge of. And there is that point where you kind of think, even when after the game, Bond you know, identifies the jewellery that she's wearing as an, an Algerian love knot, that that, that was bought to, for her by a boyfriend. And he seems to kind of, not freeze a little bit, but I think he realises that she's not as accessible perhaps as, as first thought. But it does seem... That she did kind of, you know, and it happens, doesn't it? You know, you may well be in a relationship and under some sort of duress, which is why she's doing what she's doing. But she's presented with these high tension moments and all this stress and things that can often push people together. That she's only human at the end of the day. And if you're presented with Daniel Craig in a dressing gown on an Italian hospital, <laughs> I don't know that might that might sway a lot of women. What about you? I think that his his own. I don't know. He has a he has a compelling kind of co complicated feeling to him that I think is that is quite important if you're going to lift Bond into the modern era and make him feel. I mean, even the even the gesture in this film of having him walk out of the sea as a nod to Ursula Andress is is you know I think I think a, a really good way of of ma of marking a new era of Bond and quite in a, in a very humorous and knowing way making the women who are watching it feel as if it's you know they're going to sh this time they're going to be sharing in the the visual pleasures of of how people look it won't just be the women that are that are showcased in that way in fact do we see do we ever see vespa in swimwear in this film i don't think we do do we no i think the, the most we do is even on the beach when they're together sort of later in the film uh, and he has another emerging out of the sea moment because you need to have a second I think she's still I mean she may well be in a swimsuit but I think there's a, a, a shirt or, or some sort of shawl over her 
there's not yeah. evident I mean some of her dresses are quite low cut but she's not in any kind of underwear or bikini or anything like that so and um and also quite early on you have that scene between them in the bathroom that I think is really great where she's there and she's you know she's sort of getting ready to go out so she's not not yet glammed up she looks like she hasn't got very much makeup on and he tells her that he wants her in a certain dress and then she responds by telling him that she wants him to wear a good suit i have a dinner jacket there are dinner jackets and dinner jackets this is the letter and i need you looking like a man who belongs at that table how the it's tailored sized you up the moment we met there, there are all of these really nice touches between them where you're you're kind of shown that i mean it, rem it does remind me a little bit of you know it's all sort of quite shakespearean it's got that feeling of a man who hasn't yet wanted to to settle down with anyone and then he he finds someone that that matches him her intelligence but also doesn't you know doesn't let him just sort of charm her with lines she when she gets into the lift she says you take the next one there isn't room in here for me and your ego so it's all quite i mean in, t in terms of a character like vesper watching it as a as a young man were you charmed by that kind of attitude in a woman or, or does it you know do you prefer it when a when a bond girl is a little bit more passive um, well, I mean, this is the thing, I guess I came to it at an age where I was in my mid-twenties and this was kind of, you know, it, it was a change. I think, I mean, in the previous film with Pierce Brosnan and Halle Berry, I mean, she was an equal in that she was a CIA agent. And yet yeah. she, even then, she was the one who came out of the sea in a bikini and came, you know, had some really quite lame lines and that relationship felt weird. And yet this one, with I think pretty much the same writers was handled a lot more delicately. Um, admittedly, there was a proper source material to go to, but it did kind of feel like there's always the option with Bond in that if you want to go back and see a relationship with someone more passive, you know, there are plenty of films where that's the case. Yeah. And this, this wasn't the first film where there was a bit more of an equality. I mean, in The Spy Who Loved Me, the love interest in that, Barbara Back, she was a Russian secret agent and it turned out Bond had killed her boyfriend. So yeah. there was that kind of, when she realised that halfway through the film, that got awkward. But there was an element that this was Bond trying to move into the 21st century and, and there was that kind of modern side of things that, like you say, the scene with the, the dress, him giving her a dress to wear was very much out of the 60s or 70s and then it, within 20 seconds he got flipped having a Bryony tailored tux waiting for him you know this is the sort of thing that an attention to detail that previously only Bond would have and yet now it's the kind of leading lady as well yeah and then you also have that lovely gag don't you about the your your Miss Stephanie Broadchest and she says <laughs> I am not you know so there's lots of I really did enjoy that the thing in Casino Raya where they're that there's lots of knowing jokes, aren't there, about about what the what the franchise does? But there was all this stuff that was trying to make it modern, and and this, the dialogue between them. I mean, particularly on the train, that that's kind of the standout. But the the way that the two of them just sort of played off each other, and it was 
quite confrontational to begin with. It became a relationship. I mean, you got to the point where Bond was talking about resigning. Now, I mean, yeah. that was something that was kind of hinted at in, you know, Her Majesty's Secret Service as well. But so there was that that kind of crossover from a film from 1969. But here, and of course, it's easy to do on a laptop because it's 2006. But it's there's still that thing where Bond falls in love and gets his heart broken. Um, yeah. Admittedly, it's kind of on its way to breaking before she dies or sacrifices herself or however it's however it's portrayed. But I think the fact is that we see him vulnerable in a way that previously he wasn't really that much, although it seems to now be his default position in the films that subsequently have, have led on from there. But, I mean, in terms of the, the chemistry between them, do you think that was as believable as some of the better written films, non-Bond films that we've talked about? Definitely. In fact, that, that's what I was, I was thinking that. I was thinking that... I think that the dialogue between the two of them and the casting is actually stronger than a lot of, in inverted commas, romantic films that I've seen, which shows you that if you, if you kind of put things sometimes into the, into the realm of maybe taking a bit more inspiration from screwball comedies, I'd, because I'd say the dialogue's slight, slightly similar to maybe a, something like a Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn, exchange or or as I said earlier from Hitchcock there's something about it that feels a little bit more authentic as a connection between people and you build sexual chemistry I think maybe more effectively by doing that I think that sometimes in order to seem romantic in films people can maybe flatten that a little bit you know everything becomes a bit too platonic we we talked about Notting Hill recently and there was something about that film that actually felt, in terms of the connection between the two leads, actually not very sexually charged. Whereas this, without you know showing any any actual sex scenes between the two of them, they managed to get that really crackling, I think. And I, and this is the thing that we maybe haven't touched on it before, but we talk a lot about relationships in these films if they're romantic what they're based on whether it's to do with people having something in common or being challenged but actually a lot of the time when you're attracted to someone in life it's that it's that thing you can't really put your finger on it it's just that you fancy them don't you <laughs> so and in this i think they convey that really well i think you completely believe that they fancy each other what do you think well yeah i mean you know we, we go to the the chat later on where bond's going to resign and pack it all in and go sailing around the world and she's the one who's going to have to do an honest job and there is a kind of critique of that perception of what James Bond does you know he's is he the world's worst spy or is he a government-sponsored assassin that kind of thing but and I guess if you're in the early throes of a relationship and you are besotted with someone you'll do anything to be with them yeah and no matter what Bond's past is I mean it's not really clear in this film but I mean through the books and for other films he's been a, a naval intelligence officer who's ended up in uh, in mi6 but everything he's done after one proper mission he's going to give it all up and and sail around the world with vesper i mean it's it's strange because it's kind of the one half you kind of think what you're going to give up being james bond and then the other half is well you know, if, if you're in that position and, and you are head over heels with someone yeah especially if you've got the means to do it i mean that's always a hurdle for some I suppose but if you're in a position where you can do that 
you know, get on a yeah. boat and go to Venice and hang out in five star hotels and stuff and happy days. Uh, it is relatable in that way. Obviously, much higher stakes and everything, but um, that's sometimes how relationships go. I sense from what you're saying that this idea of Bond emailing his resignation letter might have felt, I don't know, might have felt like a a bit of a, a sore point or something something that might have divided Bond fans a little bit, that feeling that he would have just done that on impulse in this film. I mean, I know that it doesn't it doesn't follow through, but how did you feel about it? It's hard to say. I, mean, I think as an example of how much he was into Vesper, I suppose it's kind of a an easy way, especially writing it on a laptop, it's an easy way of demonstrating it. But I, I think it is pushing Bond in talks about when he says about if you do what I do for long enough you don't have any soul left to salvage and he's become at this point aware of his kind of direction and the way he's headed and it gets explored again further down the line but he's at a point where it's either get out now or you it's like a Star Wars thing you know you follow the path down to the dark side you keep going where you're going you're going to end up with no ability to form a relationship and the fact that he is willing to do it, and I guess um, at least afterwards, after all this happens, they have their, their little debrief. She has almost kind of expected that, and this is part of the learning process, is that you do meet someone, you do have that kind of thing where you're going to jack it all in and put it all behind you, but really these things are transient and times change. But the relationship between Bond and M in this, they don't have a lot of screen time together, but she seems to know it's almost you know I mean she's the boss she's probably seen this a dozen times or more and I think that kind of relationship as well is interesting that the dynamic it's almost like a mother son kind of thing and she understanding of Vesper's motivations as well so I guess having that kind of oversight you kind of watching from afar watching it unfold but I, I didn't feel divided at all. I'm sure there, there are people who do and, and probably thought it was a complete betrayal of everything that James Bond stands for. But, um... <laughs> I completely agree with you. I think his, I think his relationship with M is fantastic. And, and I know that having her return to this film after she'd been in the previous ones might not make sense in terms of the time that they're putting us in. But I'm really glad that they did get her to return because I think that her her connection with him and, and her presence in the film is really effective. And another thing, actually, that I think when I saw it the first time, I really liked in terms of make, when, you, when you're going into watching part of a franchise that's so strongly linked to men, both in terms of Bond, Bond being a man and also, you know, it, it being a bigger series of films that, that means, means a lot to a lot of guys. And I know to a lot of women as well, but predominantly men, let's say, there's something about having... Eva Green and Judy Dench in this film. They're both very powerful as performers and I think that's a really good thing. I've got a question for you more generally about Bond though. Why is it in terms of um, him being a hero, this person to look up to, why can't Bond settle that like, I know that there's other been other serious relationships in his life but that it it seems to me from my limited knowledge that the kind of the rule is that he has to go through a series of women and that we all kind of know that Bond can't be Bond if he has a permanent partner. <laughs> you see what I mean? 
Like, why, why is that? Why is the appeal so bound up in his singleness? I think there's a there's a couple of aspects to that where if you're in a position where you're traveling around the world essentially killing people that it kind of sh- you need to be that em- emotionless kind of thing person where it, it would be hard if you're in a relationship with someone that would show that you have that ability to to love to care to to feel about someone else where if you're doing that kind of role you've got license to kill you know that you need to be detached in a way that I think being in a relationship would change that and and it would make things difficult from a professional point of view and it's interesting that the times where he has been involved with someone where there it has gone beyond a transient relationship that there is always the specter of him leaving the service because he can't do it anymore because he's he's found that he is actually a person and not just a, a body with a gun at the end of it. But yeah. also that there is the aspect of it being a fantasy. And I think traveling the world and the women in the films range from disposable pleasure to in many ways an equal or, or something else. And I think it's just almost, it is that thing where there's the travel, the fashion, the cars, the gadgets, the women, it is something that on a base level probably does appeal to a lot of people. And that's just what, what he does and I think if you change that too much is he James Bond anymore when you think of him as a literary figure there will be that aspect that it's not the most modern outlook on life but then he's a character who was dreamed up in the 50s yeah it's interesting isn't it when you have when escapist films are marketed to women they very often involve someone getting married Mm. but when they're marketed to men they involve the person staying single yeah. It's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and even stories going back far, far further than that. And I think it is how do you appeal to people? Um, yeah. We've talked about before about how the people who kind of are seen to enjoy Bond as a literary figure. I mean, you've got John F. Kennedy, one of his favorite books was From Russia with Love. Don Draper was reading a Bond novel in one of his scenes in Mad Men. And there's always guys who you kind of think, they're seen almost as that kind of person Um, and it's one of those strange juxtapositions really where if Bond was created now it would be probably vastly different Um, and maybe that's why because this film was so heavily lent on on Jason Bourne uh, when it came out that was the main way it was getting you know the, the series was getting away from itself a lot and Jason Bourne wasn't really that kind of character he didn't sleep around he actually formed a relationship and that helped him kind of become more of a person and Mm. you know ironically it was her death i don't remember the character's name now but at the start of the second film that kind of took him back to being jason Bourne again and in this it's him trying to get out um and it was her death that turned him back into james bond or into james bond that we know so it's hard to compare i mean i haven't read many of the great novels i don't know if you know in an alternate universe anyone from a jane austen novel would turn out to be a an assassin or some kind of <laughs> that well read well well they're, 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 an emotional assassin certainly that happened quite a lot i think um in they they do keep the line don't they the bitch is dead and that's from the book isn't it yes it is yeah, yeah yeah job's done the bitch is dead and that's an interesting decision to to keep the line but i think it it works 
well as a as a really defensive line from Bond. What do you think? I think it's important that even in 2006, I mean, referring to a woman as a bitch was unacceptable. Yeah. Again, the line was over 50 years old, but it showed his say, emotional evolution over the film, but he's been betrayed. All of a sudden, he talks about his armour being stripped. It's back. He become, he's like fully covered now. He's had this pain, and this is how he deals with it. Um, yeah. Like a lot of things. I mean, if you, you flip the genders, I mean, I don't know what the word would be if it were Jane Bond and Vincent Lind or something. I don't know what, what she would say, but there's a lot of power in that word as well. Yeah. He conveys it very well and it kind of covers the situation. But um Yeah, completely. And I think it feels it feels very powerful as a line after you as a viewer have just watched her drown, because I think that 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 scene is is so affecting and, and really and really hard to watch. And there's something about his his coldness in that moment and the extreme you can sort of feel him being kind of unable to really uh, digest the reality of her death, I think, you know, he's, he's in shock, he's in denial, and that, and that line kind of conveys that really well. Do you think that she arrives too late in the film? I don't think so. I think it's done perfectly well. The thing is, she wasn't relevant to the story up until that point. And to bring her in early on, it wouldn't have made a difference. I mean... I mean, to be fair, the 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 scene with Solange, Demetrios's wife, that was kind of him exploiting her to get to the husband. That's a Bond trope, almost. She ends up dead, which is another Bond yeah. trope. But I think she's only relevant to a point because she's there, she, the representative of, of the government. And to be fair, we, we it's our introduction to Bond. If... We're taking it back to the reboot kind of thing where we're watching him become James Bond, 007, and she isn't necessarily part of that. I think we need that kind of almost like the origin story first. Um, and yes. plus, you know, her, her scenes are condensed into an hour, hour and ten, I suppose, of the film, which yeah. makes it a bit more powerful because she's in, he falls in love with her in a very short space of time. Yeah. And she has a lot to do. And, and I think their scenes together are my favourite in the film. Yeah, the yeah. film really begins on that train journey. Yeah, completely. How do you feel, do you feel that it's ba- the, the relationship is, is balanced well with the action scenes? I think so. I think, I mean, again, the, the, the action is split quite evenly across the film. I mean, we start with the, the parkour chase in Madagascar and you know, it starts as it means to go on. I think... The fact that she is also involved in action and that kind of that draw brings them together. The scene where they have the fight in the stairwell, you know, she's involved in that. She's actively, actively a participant in that, in a way. And you know, she at least stops him from getting the gun at the end. The, the fella, but the, the film doesn't stop because she gets involved, which I think is how they do it quite well. I think it's quite easy to. It could have become a love story or a romantic story, but. The scene with the the car chase and the the flips. I mean, it's him pursuing her, and I mean, there's the plot holes in how does she get tied up on the road so quickly? But when, about that, but it's um, you know, there's that where, to be honest, it's, it's 
pitched pretty much perfectly. I mean, would you have had her introduced earlier at all? I, I, I know what you mean in the sense that she there's um, an hour, is it an hour and 20 minutes that she's in? Mm. Something like that. So that in itself is kind of almost the length of, of a film, I think, when Harry Met Sally is only an hour and a half. I suppose because I know that she, that her death is something that carries through future films and is, is something that's going to be a very big part of this Bond's narrative. There could be an argument that, you, that as, to have that kind of run up to be as long as possible in, in a film just to kind of build up that feeling of these, you know, this is going to create a huge impression in, in Bond's life. There's something to be said for her, for thinking about maybe if you'd want to introduce her a bit earlier in in exchange for some of the action that had come before. But but on the other hand, as you say, the you know those scenes are really nicely done and it's co- condensed in a in a in a good way. And maybe if you maybe if you had spread it out a little bit more, it would have been a bit more filtered down in a way that wouldn't have been quite as satisfying. Mm. How did you feel about the finger sucking? Um, <laughs> it was. <laughs> I suppose when you think, you know, she she said that she sees blood on her hands yeah. after the death. And if you're Bond, and I wouldn't say it's a natural thing, but I guess it could be understandable. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a good scene. Yeah, I don't have a problem with it. I, I mean, it might not be a, your go-to consoling mechanism, but if she presents her finger then you suck it. That's what you do. Um, <laughs> um, I heard that I heard that in the original script she was meant to be in her underwear. And that yeah. I think may, maybe it might have been Daniel Craig himself who suggested that, that it might be more more authentic if she if she were in her clothes. And I think that's a really good decision. Yeah. Um, really taken away from the emotion of the scene if she'd been in her underwear. Yeah, because again, you know, she'd undergone a trauma and you know, however she reacted, she's not going to get undressed. Yeah, sit in the shower, and and you know, again, like he's in his tuxedo, he's not going to get undressed either, which would just look weird. I, 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 I don't have a problem with. I wouldn't really change anything about the film. I mean, the weird thing is where it sits. It's not my favourite Bond film, but I think it's for what it is. It's pretty much perfectly done. Um, where does it sit? I want to know where it sits with you. Oh, I mean, top five easily. Oh, really? Um, yeah. But, oh, that's that's good. But again, you know, my favourite Bond film isn't necessarily the best Bond film. It's you know yes. the one that you can sit back and I think you know it's got Roger Moore in it or something, and it is quite silly and quite ridiculous. And this is very grounded. Yeah. I mean, w- when you watch it back now, having seen it previously, and and again, if you put it next to films where there's a there is a big well-known twist, say if you said the Sixth Sense or the Usual Suspects, for example. Um, yeah. If you come back to this and you watch it again, do you look at Vespa's facial movements, her behaviour, her body language, and does it ring differently knowing that she's the one who betrays him all along? I, th- I think maybe I think maybe you 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 do. I don't know whether I necessarily w- watched it this time thinking, oh, is you know. It, is she pulling the wool over his eyes during the earlier scenes? But I, you know, like in that scene when they have dinner, for instance, and he comments on her necklace. And... It's an old jury in a love knot. Really? 
thought it was just something pretty. No, you didn't. Someone gave that to you. He's a very lucky man. Her expressions, I think, during a scene like that, and they take on a very different tone to how they would have done the first time you watch it. So suddenly, you you feel a lot of a lot of pain in her. I think when you're when you're watching it again, that that feeling of her thinking, her part part of part of herself being caught up with something really difficult that happened to her in the past, and part of her being swept along by what's happening in the moment. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, I guess everyone takes in different things. When you come at it in the aspect of where it sits in the Bond world, you know, at the end of the second film, it becomes apparent that the boyfriend was actually a plant and was doing it to other women. Right. So when you see that and you kind of think, you know, if she's even more of a victim because this isn't actually, this is someone she's been targeted because of her position. Oh, God, yeah. Because at the end of Quantum of Solace, this boyfriend is dating someone who works in the Canadian Secret Service. Right. And you see that, but then you do kind of realise when you look back now and how there are certain scenes like when Bond reveals to her that he thinks that Mathis was the one that betrayed him. And the camera does linger on her face for an extra kind of quarter of a second. Yeah. Almost kind of watching her register that. It's almost like, you know, you wouldn't think twice about it the first time round. But knowing the truth, you kind of see, uh, because there is that almost, she's processing that as going, oh my God, he's fallen for it. Yes. Not yes. in a malicious way, but like he believe that's what he believes. He doesn't suspect yeah. me at all, which is a shame because I think perhaps in different circumstances, things would have gone a lot smoother for them and they'd be sailing up and down in their little dinghy. <laughs> you know, and if we go back to the, the train scene at the beginning and this is a genuine flirtation and the talk of, of his charm. And as Vesper says, So as charming as you are, Mr Bond, I'll keep my eyes on our government's money and off your perfectly formed arse. You noticed. Even accountants have imagination. How is your lamb? Steward, one sympathises. Well, this is the thing, again, watching it on a second time, you, you kind of assume throughout the film that it's Bond because it's James Bond. And, and while she holds purse strings, while she has some, some power over him in that, Initially, she refuses to allow him to buy back into the game uh, and it falls on Felix Leiter to do that, which, again, goes off another tangent. But it's only at the end when, when the reveal comes out is that everything that transpired, especially after the torture scene, is because of her making this deal, essentially to allow him to, to live. You know, and it's one of these really clever ones. It's not an obvious thing and you think it's obvious, but it's not. And I think it's so cleverly done that when she loses that financial influence over him, she develops a different kind of power, knowingly yeah. or otherwise. Um, what do you think? It's such a difficult one. I mean, I think that there's a there could be a really compelling argument made for either of them holding the cards, which is probably why it's it's such a great it's such a great pairing in this film and really well written, I think. And, and directed because you can kind of feel that you know it's like two people on a on a seesaw and you don't know 
which way it's going to go. That's weird, weird metaphor, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, it's very, it's very evenly balanced and extremely complex to to watch all that. And both, and both of them put themselves uh, in order to save the other. A different, a different parts of the narrative. They both put their life in jeopardy in incredibly real ways, don't they? So in, in that sense both of them are willing to risk everything for the other like you said there's obvious points where they make sacrifices be it physically emotionally mentally whatever a different kind of power to something that's a bit more obvious but you know the fact that we're probably five seconds away from bond being physically castrated because he doesn't want vespa to suffer yeah and whatever she does behind the scenes and obviously a lot of it's not shown on the film but um it is implied and i think that there is a balance there and i think this is what tips it in a bond film because it's always bond it's the cliche but this one is different and this is the one that kind of informs everything afterwards for better or worse but yeah it's coming back to this now again in full for the first time in in quite a while it's very refreshing to see something that, quite frankly, could be taken out of the Bond franchise and work in a different film, maybe even a standalone film, and, and probably work quite well. Yes, yes, completely. Mm. It's funny that thing of the. Does it? Did it ever? Did it ever feel weird as a as a Bond fan? This the the amount of dying women <laughs> that you that you experience in Bond films. Uh, I guess. It wouldn't feel weird because it's normal. That's what happens in Bond films. <laughs> I think it, it's quite funny, isn't it? At the beginning of what's the second Austin Powers film called? Oh, um, yeah, The Spy Who Shagged Me. Yeah, where where it turns out that um, his wife was a was a fembot and she she explodes and then he says, "Oh no!" and then he says, "Wait a minute, that means I'm single again." <laughs> and uh, I always thought that was quite quite a sort of funny funny joke at the expense of. Of how of how um how much quick grieving Bond has to do in films, but I suppose that's the thing with this modern interpretation with Daniel Craig, as you say. I think they try they try and home in on the grieving aspect a little bit more, don't they? Yeah, I mean, even yeah. in the most recent film, as he's starting a new relationship, there's still an echo to the pre- to, to Vespa in. Spectre in the hotel, he finds a video of what's called her interrogation scene and oh, yeah. he lingers over it and throws this videotape away. And then it gets referred to by, by Blofeld as well as a weapon that he gets close to someone, she dies. And it haunts him, you know, and again, you know, we're still waiting for the, the next Bond film and who knows, I'm sure she'll get referred to in that as well because he's met and fallen in love and left the service. So uh, let's see what brings him back. Well, as we lower ourselves into Venice's Grand Canal, leaving nothing but our smiles and little fingers, we leave you with the question, why do people who can't take advice always insist on giving it on podcasts? I've been Kat. I've been Rich. And this has been Don't You Want Me.